This is Energy Thinks, a podcast about how the oil and gas industry can future-proof against rising social risk and lead the world into the energy future. I'm Tisha Schuler, your host and the principal of Adamantine Energy. On today's show, we convert a invite-only webinar that Adamantine Energy hosted with the Environmental Defense Fund and the Colorado School of Mines Pain Institute. Our focus is on how today's crises have changed investors' thinking about the oil and gas industry. I moderated it, and we had an introduction by Ben Ratner of EDF. Uh, most of the discussion you'll hear today was directed to Michaela de la Vigna. He's the Commodity Equity Business Unit Leader with Goldman Sachs. And he was with us from London and the conversation was really interesting and went in directions I didn't expect. To learn more about these webinars, previous podcasts, and our work at Adamantine, you can check us out at energythinks.com and subscribe to my weekly email. Now here's my conversation with Michaela de la Vigna. Today's podcast was originally recorded as a webinar. So occasionally you'll hear reference to other panelists who aren't included in the cuts that we made for today's podcast. So before we start um, with our panelists, I wanna introduce you to Ben Ratner. Ben is the Senior Director of the Energy Transition Team at the Environmental Defense Fund. And he leads and grows EDF's work on solutions with industry and investors. So Ben, I turn it over to you. Well, thank you, Tisha. On behalf of EDF, thank you all very much for joining today. COVID is such a challenge for all of us, of course, and we know the oil price volatility is placing extra strain on our industry colleagues in different ways. And so we truly appreciate uh, your time and your participation. It won't surprise anyone to know that we at EDF want to make sure that we can still have the important conversations about climate change and decarbonization, even while we acknowledge that for many, these are not the topics that are top of mind today. So we support calls like this to engage and inspire dialogue in the spirit of collaboration. EDF's goal for the U.S. by 2050 is not zero oil and gas but it is net zero greenhouse gas emissions across the economy. I think a key piece of getting there is engaging the oil and gas industry through the energy transition. In our experience, many investors also increasingly recognize the net zero greenhouse gas destination of where we need to go. That is a North Star. And we're coming to really appreciate the tremendous role that investors play in helping to get there. Investor analysis informs the roadmap for the journey. Investor engagement can help companies steer along the way. And of course, capital from investors, that's like the fuel. EDF is actively engaging with the investor community on these issues, and we'll be doing more of that in the months and years ahead. So I really couldn't be more pleased that we're joined by Michaela and Sean. And now I'm really looking forward to sitting back and listening and learning from them, and especially looking forward to the interactive Q&A to follow. So back to you, Tisha. So let me tell you about our panelists today. So we have Michaela de la Vigna, 
who joins us from Goldman, Goldman Sachs in London. And he has, he's been there since 2001 and leads some really interesting research, including a carbonomics report, which you can find in a pretty easy web search that was uh, prepared in, in just December of last year. And I'm gonna jump right in with Michaela. So my first question for you um, is that today's crises are top of mind. We have a health crisis underway. We're moving into a global recession that some are calling a depression. So how do ESG and climate and decarbonization fit into that framework at this moment? So Michaela, why don't you start for us and welcome? Absolutely. Thank you, Tisha. And thank you for hosting me. Uh, it's going to be a very interesting discussion. I, I think ESG is absolutely at the core of how industries change in the middle of this crisis. ESG in the past was mainly a political pressure. Today, it is led by investors. It is shareholders that are pushing for ESG issues. And if we focus on the energy industry, particularly on preparedness for climate change, you mentioned shareholder resolutions. Well, the climate change shareholder resolutions have doubled in the last five years, but more importantly, the shareholder support has tripled. They've gone effectively from something that had to be acknowledged to something that has to be acted on. And I think this crisis, if anything, uh, reiterates and reinforces the importance of the energy transition and also reminds a lot of the companies that they need to think about risk-adjusted returns. And when we focus on risk-adjusted returns, actually, some of the investments in renewables and low-carbon infrastructure looks relatively more attractive than some of the marginal investments in oil and gas that have been made over the last 10 years. Michael, I want to uh, build off a little bit of what you were saying. D with regards to investors now having to think about risk differently, does does the current pandemic and resulting economic environment, does that accelerate a focus on climate in, in the medium term or will it actually decelerate? We know there will be a break, a little bit of a break in focus, but what happens after that? Do the wheels spin faster or do they spin slower? And, and I can find commentary articulating both out there. So I'm interested in what, what, what you think. Tisha, absolutely. The, the answer is both. I think on one side, it accelerates the shift of CapEx away from oil and gas towards low carbon solutions. There's no doubt about that. We are seeing it clearly in the composition of investment for big oils, for instance. They have cut investments in oil by over 30%. They have barely touched the investment on renewables. So the shift is being accelerated. What I think could be a challenge is carbon pricing. Carbon pricing, which is a major driver of decarbonization, is already facing um, different views on a global basis and lack of global coordination. And I think an issue with affordability, which clearly is coming with this recession, could further delay an increase in the scale and in uh, the level of carbon pricing, which is ultimately going to be one of the key policy drivers towards decarbonization. That's why I think 
in some ways it accelerates it, but in other ways it could provide the challenge to move to the next stage of decarbonization investments. Um, so I know our audience pretty well. And Michaela, I know that right now the squeeze on companies financially is tremendous. They're making 30% capital cuts. They're in some cases furloughing uh, a third of their workforce. Under So that's top of mind, of course. And so the idea of investing in ESG and climate strategies and decarbonization probably feels like a luxury in the context of getting uh, share prices that have lost, you know, 70% of value since January, uh, raising those up. So are there scenarios, I'll, I'll say this in, in an affirmative way, are there scenarios that the, the these strategies, these decarbonization or ESG focused strategies will positively impact share prices? What would that take? What could companies be looking for so that this seems like a very financially prudent investment as well as a, a resiliency and risk based one. So um, first of all, let me completely agree with you that this is a, an incredibly difficult moment for the oil and gas industry, a moment in which balance sheet resilience and cash preservation take the priority. But let me look at a different example, an example in the utilities world, where for instance, Dong in the middle of the previous crisis decided to invest in something that at the time was considered crazy, which was offshore wind. And today it is one of the leaders in renewables as Orsted, and it has created tremendous shareholder value. That is why I believe actually investing in these difficult times in the right technologies for the future will create value. Now, not everybody will be able to do it, balance sheet preservation will end up coming first. But that, I believe, is yet another reminder of why in oil and gas, it's important to preserve a strong balance sheet. Because that is the way to navigate the cycle, being able to make the most valuable investments at the bottom of the cycle without having to cut attractive new investment opportunities. Great, thank you. I'm gonna weave in an audience question that um, it, it, I'm curious about as well, which is there's so much stimulus funding going on globally, but we'll, let's just focus on North America for now. And there's a lot of talk of stimulus funding being focused in a way that would address climate or decarbonization or remaking the energy system. Can you foresee a way that this stimulus could also be relevant to oil and gas and climate interests such as carbon capture and sequestration or things that that work in this in this space that that could address multiple interests and, and not be counter uh, just to to industry uh interests either of you have a thought about that let, 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 let me jump in first on on that question if i may um yes there are without doubt i think important ways in which governments can uh, go for a pro-growth strategy that also helps decarbonization. And uh, I believe the areas you've mentioned are some of the most important ones. Um, carbon capture, which to be fair is a core part of the decarbonization solution, but which has been completely underinvested for at least two decades. Hydrogen, 
which can create a lot of value, which is a key part of the decarbonization of heavy transport and heating. Renewables in some areas, although in many other areas, actually they are already economic as they are today. These are all areas in which we believe government stimulus would create jobs, lead to investment and go a very long way towards our aim to be um, carbon neutral by 2050. Because you're sitting in London, we're seeing the international majors based in Europe, really, especially in this moment, focusing on talking about their new energies businesses. And so we don't see a lot of that, if any of that, in the US. And I'm just curious if part of uh, discerning among oil and gas, if we could anticipate in the US, we might start seeing that kind of expectation as well. Thank you, Tisha. Um, two things on that subject. First of all, let me take for a second back to what Sean was saying in terms of the divestment movement, because I think that is so important in understanding the behavior of the European majors. I think it's very important for investors here to engage with big oils because big oils risk management capability, um, ability to invest very large amounts and uh, scale will become very important for the energy transition. So engagement is key, but in order for engagement to work, there also has to be a credible threat. And that's where the successful divestment movement on the coal companies, which involved more than a thousand institutions that led to an over 60% derating of the coal sector, is actually the credible threat that makes the dialogue and engagement successful. And that's where I think there's an interesting balance between engagement and divestment. Now, going to exactly what the European majors are doing, I think it's always been in the DNA of the European majors to work across complex value chains that are close to the customers and they involve a lot of supply maximization. They've done it, for instance, in the LNG business, where the Americans have mainly simply built big projects but haven't really done the full value chain and the full trading and supply maximization. The Europeans jumped in. And I think that kind of business lends itself quite nicely to be replicated in power and to be connected with the power strategy, both with renewables and gas-fired power plants. And that's why I think on top of the shareholder pressure and shareholder engagement, there is a more natural structure of their business that lends itself more to this kind of development. I have read a number of analyses that in the COVID era, sustainable investing funds are performing better. Um, so, so it even takes what you just said a step further that in this moment they're, mm -hmm. they're, they're performing better. I have wondered um, from my vantage point as a, as a, as a in supporter, uh, an engager of the oil and gas industry, if those are sort of self-fulfilling prophecies or, or, or the way that someone is slicing and dicing, or do you actually see that that's a valid observation that will inform ongoing investment? Thank you, Tisha. Thank you. I, I completely agree with you, particularly on the returns of some of these low carbon opportunities versus oil and gas. I so often hear 
that the returns are lower. Um, but there's two points we need to look into. First of all, as Sean said, they need to be risk adjusted, but also I think often we compare the returns on the capital employed, while we should compare the return on equity, given that the renewable investment can sustain a much larger amount of debt. The second thing that I would say is that if we look back to some of the oil and gas investments of the last 15 years, the returns have been often single digits, sometimes low single digits. If we look at the return on US shale, including all of the investment made in the last 10 years, it is low single digits. So I'm not sure it is fair to say that renewable investments are lower returns. I, I do think that there needs to be a better balance here, where on one side, we get a good regulatory framework that supports continued investments in renewables. And on the other side, I actually think it's quite healthy that we're seeing a tightening of financing condition in oil and gas, because that is what can generate better supply dynamics, which ultimately bring back returns to what they used to be historically, which is good double digit returns. And not to be fair, the horrendous corporate returns we've seen through this age of oil and gas overinvestment that started in 2004. We got uh, several audience questions now that continue in this theme. And one, one builds off a point you just made, Michaela, and I open this up to either of you, but essentially says, is there so much focus on ESG in oil and gas because of their financial underperformance? Uh, so is, is, that, is that the reason? If, if oil and gas had really significant returns, uh, would they be in some ways exempt from this? I, I think the two issues are, are linked. I think oil and gas has an issue in terms of decarbonization, but to be fair, an issue that I believe they can address. I think there's enough the industry can do to adapt and be consistent with uh, a two degrees or even a one and a half degree scenario. But I think the fundamental problem is the low returns that come from the overinvestment the fragmentation and the cost inflation of the last 15 years have created an extremely negative sentiment around the sector that can only be resolved with capital discipline and I believe with consolidation and better cost management. And certainly we'll be seeing a focus on that in the short term as we see this longer trend of, uh, of wanting to see risk management around ESG. Um, for either of you, a, a really relevant question, and it was highlighted um, in some ways in the Carbonomics report in a really interesting way, which uh, who knows how, how that will, will uh, hold true in, in the post-pandemic era. But a question is, uh, there's now likely to be systemic underinvestment in oil and gas rel relative to projected demand. Now, perhaps there's a world where we have reached peak oil, but we certainly have a, a lot of developing economies coming online. We can anticipate a lot of future oil demand while we're seeing a lot of smaller investment, particularly in those mega projects. So do either one of you want to take a shot on your thoughts of what happens with uh, not enough investment to meet growing future oil demand? Let, let me perhaps take that question and Sean, please add to it. Um, on our estimates, peak oil demand 
is likely to happen somewhere in the late 20s, early 30s. But peak non-OPEC supply, we believe, was last year. And we believe that the structural underinvestment that for long cycle development started in 2014 and that for shale is possibly beginning this year leads non-OPEC to be structurally X growth from now. Meaning that we need OPEC to contribute the delta that is being created between a demand that is still growing and on the other side, a supply from non-OPEC that grows no more. And that should start to create a better supply dynamic in oil and gas. I would also say that higher oil prices is not inconsistent with decarbonization and actually would offer an increased incentive to consumers to think more and more about energy efficiency and makes uh, low carbon alternatives more attractive. I'll switch to um, a little more on the finance side from investor perspectives. So for the first time in some cases in decades, we're seeing large oil and gas um, publicly held companies cut their um, dividends. And curious about uh, how investors are seeing that. Um, and does that empower or undermine their ability to invest in climate and decarbonization? Interested in, in any perspectives you have on how this dividend cut fact, cuts factor into this conversation. Mikhail, I'll turn that to you. So my, my personal view is that the oil industry performs best under financial constraints and that it's when it has to pursue cost and capex efficiency that it delivers its best returns. That was the environment in the 90s, where the sector, particularly the big companies, performed very well. The capital abundance of the 2000s did not do much good to capital returns or to equity performance. And that's why I believe a high payout ratio actually is a good restraint that makes the oil companies make better capital decisions. However, we also need to admit that this is a cyclical sector and that in difficult downturns like this one, a fixed dividend can be a very difficult burden. And so we actually believe that perhaps a variable payout, a variable dividend, which goes cyclically with the commodity and which allows anti-cyclical investment actually could be a good choice for the sector and a good substitute to the current progressive dividend plus buybacks, which hasn't necessarily always served the sector best with expensive buybacks in the up cycle and then tough financial constraints in the down cycle. Direction of travel is a big signpost, especially while companies are focusing on the short term, uh, the short term financial, uh, whether it be cuts or consolidations, all, all the things that, that are gonna get uh, the company's houses in order to respond to this moment. But direction of travel um, is is really interesting way that companies could be thinking about communicating to their stakeholders and investment community that they're on a, a, a pathway that acknowledges climate and decarbonization. So I'm, I'm, mm -hmm. I, I like that, that narration. Um, I wanna circle back 
not, not in too much detail, because, but at a high level, because it's been on a lot of people's minds, this idea that a carbon price in the US was starting to seem um, to have bipartisan support and to gain some momentum. I don't think any of us would bet money on it. Um, but the, this moment, there's generally an understanding that the politics of this moment just won't prioritize that. On the other hand, it seems to me that if there were bipartisan support for a carbon tax, uh, particularly a revenue neutral carbon tax, this might be the time to uh, create, because energy prices are so low, and the revenue would prevent, would be go, go back to the public. So do either of you have any, have you heard or seen any signals from the investment community on whether they would, what they think, how they think this fits in? Interested in your, in your thoughts on that. I think carbon pricing is very important, but it's also important to design it well. And without doubt, it's important to avoid any regressive nature of carbon pricing, which could come through particularly in the US because of the high energy use of the low income population. But also it would be important to design it correctly from a global perspective. And from that standpoint, we believe that border adjustment becomes very important because without border adjustment, the risk is that the carbon intensive industries simply all move to another country, that there is carbon leakage while border adjustment makes sure that not only that doesn't happen, but that other countries that export goods, let's say to the United States, would have the incentive to harmonize carbon pricing in order to avoid being taxed at the border. That's why we believe it's important to get global coordination on carbon pricing. But on the other side, there's no doubt, carbon pricing is very important. In um, the carbonomics report you refer to, we've uh, tried to model almost 100 different technologies of decarbonization, and it's pretty clear that at least for 60% of those, carbon pricing is absolutely key. Without it, it will be very difficult to kickstart that process of investment, which typically leads to technological evolution and improved economics, the way we have seen with solar and wind over the last decade. The, the, what, what you just said about the moving of higher carbon intensity activities into other um, countries invokes a question. We have so many great questions from the audience, so thank you. And I'll do my best to get to all of them here in our, in our time remaining. Um, but one, one question was about the different ESG climate decarbonization expectations for a publicly traded company in the US, Canada, Europe versus um, the national oil companies that uh, don't fall under these constraints. And you mentioned one uh, solution, which is uh, carbon pricing that uh, accounts for that. Uh, now, now that we're seeing um, more interest in publicly trading uh, NOCs or, or investor activity related to NOCs, are they falling under the same kind of pressure? Will, will, will NOCs have stakeholder and investor pressure around ESG and climate? And um, Mikhail, I'll send that to you. Mm. They, they do have pressure as well. They share some of the same shareholders uh, as the international oil companies, however, the controlling shareholder tends to be the government, which has varying degrees of care. 
an example, for instance, of a government that has cared is Saudi Arabia and that has led the production in the country to actually be amongst the lowest in the world in terms of carbon emission per barrel produced. But other countries have not put the same focus. And so, to be fair, we see a huge varying degrees um, of, um, of uh, engagement in climate change amongst national oil companies. Great. Michaela, tell us what the world looks like um, from your perspective and, and how investors are thinking about these kind of R&D developments. I, these R&D developments are very important for the long-term future of these companies. Um, and, and that's where we see huge focus on carbon capture, on hydrogen, on batteries. But let's not forget one key role that big oils can already play today, which is um, coal to gas substitution. I know a lot of environmentalists don't like gas in the long term, but let's be clear, gas, at least in the transition for the next 10 to 20 years, is extremely important. And in conjunction with renewables is a, a key way to avoid consuming coal and sit very low on that decarbonization cost curve. And so I think the shift from coal to gas and the development of affordable gas, particularly in emerging markets, is a core, ta is a core task that big oils can take as they become big energy in the next 10 years. Um, Mikhail, I'm interested, we're, we're thinking about a globe that's going into uh, economic recovery at, at some point uh, before it, once we get through our health uh, crisis, um, we know that there was going to be massive energy demand growth in developing economies. So at least I am optimistic that we will return to a world where economies are uh, through a health crisis and actually growing to a point that they can create jobs uh, in their economies. Um, how are how, how are you thinking about the, this energy transition now that instead of a, a shift to a, a cleaner energy uh, growth in developing economies, but now we're also going, going to compound this with a real economic urgency. Uh, for me, this creates um, a pretty important runway for oil and gas and the parts of the energy economy that they support. Um, how are investors thinking about that, balancing this with, this, with the clean and climate requirements? There's no doubt there is a double challenge here. Um, a challenge on one side of supplying more energy and on the other side of reducing carbon emissions. And, and that's why I believe the right matrix to focus on to think about decarbonization of the energy companies is not so much the absolute level of carbon emissions because you can simply reduce those by shrinking and that does does not do good to anybody, but actually thinking about how can these companies supply more energy, but decrease the carbon intensity of the energy, effectively improve the quality of that energy while still supplying to more and more people. And that I think will be the key challenge for the industry because this is not about shrinking. It's about growing, but growing in a cleaner way. Your closing thoughts for our for our oil and gas leaders on, on the call. 
Um, thank you, Tisha. And uh, so I think without doubt, the imperative at the moment is the safety and well-being of all of the employees of the oil companies and of their customers. But as we start to think about recovery outside of uh, from cor the coronavirus impact, I think the focus of investors will be mainly on two things. One, on a more rationalized, consolidated, efficient oil and gas industry that can improve capital efficiency and the cost structure. And on the other side, on continued development and improvement in the low carbon technology, particularly in areas that have been substantially underinvested, like hydrogen, like carbon capture, like reforestation, which become key drivers of the goal that society has to contain global warming. That's our episode for today. Thanks to EDF and the Colorado School of Mines Pain Institute for co-hosting this event with Adamantine Energy. And a really big thank you to Michaela de la Vigna from Goldman Sachs. We want to know what you think about what you've heard today. Visit our website at energythinks.com podcast and tell us. You can subscribe to Energy Thinks on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you're hearing, please give us a five-star rating. Thanks for listening to Energy Thinks. Until next time, I'm Tisha Schuler, wishing you and yours happiness, prosperity, and good health.